Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. In telling stories, Jesus used one specific method of teaching. It was known as mashal in Hebrew, or simply as parables. A full one-third of what Jesus' recording sayings were, were spoken in parables. I was always taught that parables were an earthly story with a heavenly truth. Are you familiar with this definition? Okay, Parables are an earthly story with a heavenly truth. Okay, No, they're not. Okay, Let's cross out that statement. Okay, What happens is we think that there's this statement of truth within the parable, and then once I understand the point, I'm good to go. Once I grasp the heavenly truth that Jesus is telling us, then I have achieved the goal of the parable. No, no, that's an illustration. And Jesus does give some illustrations. Illustrations are an earthly story with a heavenly truth, but parables, they're altogether different. A parable is different than an illustration. An illustration is a picture of a stated truth. A parable is truth hidden within the story itself. An illustration uh, pictures what had been plainly stated, whereas a parable hides and doesn't plainly state. These stories hide something. Robert Farrar Capon says this about parables. For Jesus, the parables were not used to explain things to people's satisfaction, but rather to call into question all their previous explanations and understandings. Far from being illustrations that illuminate what people haven't yet figured out, parables are designed to pop every circuit breaker of the mind. Even the name itself, parable, is a juxtaposition. Okay? It comes from the two Greek words, para and bole. Para, to come alongside of, right? That's where we get the word paramedic, to come alongside the doctor. Paralegal, someone who comes alongside the lawyer. And then bole, which means to throw something. It's where we get the word ball. So to come alongside something that you've thrown, okay? It's two things thrown together. They are stories that leave you asking, wait, what? Who am I? How do I understand this world? What about God? A parable almost is a paradox in and of itself, right? To, to cast or to throw beside or alongside of. Away and near. Even defining the word parable, there is obscurity, mystery. Parables are meant to provoke and disrupt in all the right kinds of ways. You want to know what the sun is like? Look at your shadow. You can't look directly at the sun. You have to look at its effects, okay? You have to feel the warmth on your skin. When you teach using parables, you are not just asking people to listen. You're asking them to think. The parables would either cause people to stop what they're doing, reevaluate, think, wonder, explore, contemplate, or it would cause them to harden their hearts, well, it doesn't make sense on with my life. Parables are stories that, that are intended to pull the rug out from underneath you. A common theme in the parables is if you're comfortable, you're about to be disturbed. As the lure is dropped into the water and pulled alongside your life, questions begin to stir up within your soul. 
Oftentimes they're questions that you thought you had answers to. But the parables jolt you into considering a different way of understanding, a different way of seeing. And that the real understanding comes not when you get the story, but when the story gets us. Religion is designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And we do well to think of the parables in the same manner. Therefore, if we hear a parable and we think, well, I really like that, or worse yet, we fail to take away the challenge, then we're not listening well enough. We might be better off thinking less about what they mean and more about what they can do. They remind, they provoke, they refine, they comfort, they disturb. Parables are meant for transformation of life, not transformation of information. We need the parables. Listen, if we ever get to the point of our Christianity, of our journey of following Jesus, where we think we've arrived, where everything makes perfect sense, you've got everything figured out, that you're getting it, that's when we know that we haven't gotten it. Jesus should be blowing our minds, okay? Uh, Jesus should be challenging our assumptions. He, he should be messing with us constantly, continually, over and over again. Jesus isn't a statement of things to believe in. He doesn't come with a list of the, the things that we need to know, and once you've memorized them, you're good to go. No. Jesus is a person who's inviting us into a relationship, and this relationship is going to challenge us. It's going to stretch us. It's going to grow us. We need to be jolted into considering different ways of understanding, of seeing the world. And that's what the parables do. You may think that you don't need to be jolted. You may be perfectly comfortable with the current worldview that you have. But that is just further evidence that, in fact, we need some kind of catalyst in our life to spark. We need a reset. We need the, the power box in our life to be tripped. As followers of Jesus, our primary identity is defined in Him. And that is a constant movement, a maturing, a growth, an expanding awareness. Jesus always says, follow me. He never says, stay right there. There should be growth. There should be change. Today we begin week one of our sermon series, The Parables of Jesus, and they're going to lead us right into Resurrection Sunday. And today we're going to look at two short parables that Jesus tells right next to each other. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. It says this in Matthew 13. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it worked all through the dough. So the kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed, and then it's like yeast? What does this mean? Like you may have heard uh, sermons about this or certain interpretations about it, right? Like that the kingdom of God, it started small like a mustard seed, but then it grew into something, the largest world religion. Maybe you've heard an interpretation similar to that. Though it was small and insignificant, 
it grew to something great and large. Okay, amen. Sermon over. That's the interpretation. And with the parable of the yeast, maybe you've heard it say that the yeast is the gospel. And when it is planted in the human heart, it eventually works its way out and changes the entire composition of the dough. Okay, now it's bread. Now it's delicious and it can feed people. Okay, amen. Those are the explanations. Go home now. The kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed and yeast. Great. Uh, people have shared this interpretation style for many, many years. But the scriptures, all of the scriptures, and even specifically the parables, are really like a diamond. Uh, a diamond, if you stare at it long enough, you think you know it, but if you just turn the point of view just a fraction, you see everything in a whole new way. So we are all going to become jewelers this morning and throughout this sermon series. We're gonna take a look at these diamonds and just see what the Spirit might show us. Giordano Savonarola was one of the great 15th century preachers. He preached at the great cathedral in Florence which contained a magnificent marble statue of the Virgin Mary. When Savonarola started preaching at this great cathedral, he noticed that an elderly woman prayed before the statue Mary, and he had come to realize that every single day she would pray before the statue. He remarked one day to an elderly priest in the village who had been serving the cathedral for many years, Look how devoted this earnest woman of the Lord is. Every day she comes and offers prayers to the Blessed Mother of Jesus. What a marvelous act of faith. But the elderly priest replied, Do not be deceived by what you see. See, many years ago, the sculptor needed a model to pose for this statue of the Blessed Mother. And he hired a beautiful young woman to sit for him. This devout worshiper that you see here every day was that young woman, and she is worshiping who she used to be. Things are not always as they seem. And in the parable of the mustard seed, we are taught many things. In first century Israel, towns were small, and the towns were communal, okay? You didn't have your own garden. There was a village garden, and that's where you would sow seed. So. Eric would plant his eggplants, Brittany would plant her tomatoes, and Jesus tells the story of a man planting mustard seeds. And the early audience would have immediately gone, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's not allowed. Because in Jesus' time, there was a teaching, a rabbinic teaching called the Kalayim. And it was written this very, by respected rabbis, and it says this in 3.2, it is forbidden to sow different species of seeds in one bed, mustard and small peas, are considered seeds and therefore should not be planted in garden beds. This is a well-known religious rule of the time. Uh, don't plant mustard, specifically in the garden. So why does Jesus intentionally break this religious rule? Well, it's part of his irreligious message. Jesus is critiquing the religious traditions of his day by breaking away from this tradition. And mustard in the ancient world was known for its healing properties. Jesus in this parable is planting the seed of healing from the confines of religious living. One of the things I love most about our church is that so many people are experiencing a healing from the confines of religious living. 
that is the heartbeat of our prodigal church, that we uh, are called out of rebellious living like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son, and we are called out of religious living like the older son. Jesus brings healing from religious living, pointing us towards the fact that Jesus replaces religion with himself. This parable teaches us that for kingdom people, no seed is or should be seen as insignificant. Each contains life within it. All belong. What appears to be lifeless, small, insignificant, uh, should be outside the gates. No, no, no. All of these have wonderful potential for new life. Every single person, like the mustard seed, has incredible potential for life. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it worked all through the dough. There is so much in these two tiny parables. I'm gonna try and kind of zoom through the subversive messages found within them. Here in the parable of the yeast, the Greek word for yeast here is zume, and it refers to a sourdough starter, okay? Anyone who has ever made bread from scratch, this ancient tradition, knows that there is a decomposition process. Recipes instruct bakers to place the starter in the bowl, covering the bowl with a dishcloth, a wet, damp dishcloth, and let the mixture sit in warm, breezeless place, such as a dark oven. As the mixture sits, fermentation begins. The starter is ready, and what the recipe calls for, a pleasant, sour smell. When that develops, it's ready. Now, I'm not a cook, okay? I'm, I'm a bit of a domestic disaster. Nevertheless, the idea of a sour smell combined with a bubbly mixture created the process of fermentation, it doesn't really ring delicious to me. To the contrary, there is an ick factor at play. The process, with its possible negative connotations, was well known in antiquity. One ancient writer says that the yeast is the product of corruption and that the process of leavening seems to be one of putrefaction. Zume, yeast, begins with the breaking down of enzymes, it smells, and yet the finished product, that's amazing. Is there many things better than the smell of fresh baked bread? No. So what, what starts as something of an ick becomes an aroma of leaven from heaven. Isn't that the story of Jesus? If there was ever an ick moment in history, it was the crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet, now we sing of the beauty and love of God because of the cross. What started as repugnant has now become beautiful. What was once seen as bad and ick can eventually become good. This happens all the time throughout Scripture. It happens all the time in our lives. Okay? How has it happened in your life? Something that was so bad but somehow, some way, something that was repugnant, something that, that, that was awful, somehow became a turning point and God can make beauty in the midst of it. Now let's turn the diamond again. 
Now let's turn the diamond. Again, the early followers of Jesus would have had an internal bell go off when they read the phrase, three measures of flour. Uh, now that's something that we miss being 2,000 years removed. But the book of Genesis, which his early readers would have been familiar with, we find Abraham sitting in his tent in the heat of the day. Okay, he's hot, he's tired. He's had to deal with difficult relationship with his first wife, Sarah, and his other wife, Sarah's slave, Hagar. And he has just completed not only his own circumcision, but the circumcision of every male in his household, okay? It's been a long week. And suddenly, Abraham up and sees three men standing near him. In the classical Christian tradition, the three men represent the Trinity. In Jewish thought, they represent God and two angels. Abraham, displaying the kind of hospitality of which he will become famous, runs from his tent, prostrates himself before the strangers, and invites them to lunch. The story is found in Genesis 18, verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of the flour. Knead it and make bread cakes. Three measures. Now, in first century terms, this is not synonymous with three cups or three servings. No, three measures of flour is somewhere between 40 and 60 pounds, okay? This is excessive. It would feed over 100 people. The dough would be far too much for one woman to knead on her own, and the yield would be far too much for any person to consume. The image here is of extravagance. It's hyperbole. Abraham sees these three strangers and says, honey, make a little bread for like, I don't know, 100 people. A little bread from three measures, okay? This was lavish. This was extravagant. The kingdom of God is like this. It is extravagant. It's generous. This extravagant hospitality shown by Sarah and Abraham, this welcoming of strangers who then turn out to be God. In the parable of the yeast, could Jesus be hinting at the same thing? Should we also show the same extravagance in our interactions with strangers and guests? Doesn't Jesus himself teach us in the gospel that whenever we feed the hungry, whenever we visit the prisoner, whenever we clothe the naked, that we are doing that unto God? Who are the strangers and guests in your life, in my life? It's everyone. It's the dude behind you at Starbucks. Not long ago, Sarah and I were in the drive-thru at Starbucks, and I can't remember what we were there for, but we were ordering coffee, but we were also ordering like some pastries, like a bunch, okay? Like, and it took a long time. We ordered like $14 worth of stuff, okay? And then we arrived at the window to pay, and they said, um, it has been paid forward, okay? It's, it's free for you. Would you like to pay it forward for the person behind you? And I'm like, so wait, the person in front of us just took care of our $14 order? And they're like, of course. And I'm like, yes, okay, well, I will absolutely pay it forward. How much is it? And they're like, well, the person behind you only ordered a black coffee, okay, $1.62. And like now I felt bad, right? Because my order was so big. And so I thought of maybe, you know, buying, you know, for the next two cars 
instead of just one, but that would just throw off the whole system, right? It's pay it forward, not pay it forward forward. So I gave them the 162, and then I just drove off and went to town on those pastries, okay? Now, as with the mustard seed and as with the yeast, even small actions or hidden actions have the potential to produce great things. What I love most about these two parables is they're normal. They take place in everyday scenarios. The seed parable is set in a garden or a local field. The yeast parable in the village oven. The kingdom of heaven is found in what today we might call our own backyard. In the generosity of nature and in the daily working of men and women. Perhaps the parable tells us that despite all of our images of golden slippers and harps and halos, that the kingdom is present at the communal oven of a Galilean village in a garden where everyone has enough. Might the message be that we should reevaluate the most simple of domestic materials that that some things that we might see as negative or as plain, they just might have significant spiritual potential. The kingdom can be associated with pearls, but also with yeast, with banquets, but also with mustard seeds, with kings, but also with shepherds, common folk like you and me. We'll end our time together with a modern day parable. Parable of a rich businessman who, while returning from work after lunch, saw a fisherman come up from the side of the river with a bucket of fish. Where are you going, said the businessman. Well, I'm going to the market to sell all these fish. And how long did it take you to catch those fish? The fisherman responds, well, probably a couple of hours. Well, what are you gonna do for the rest of the day? I don't know. I guess I'll just sit on the beach with my family and drink some wine and chat with the passerbys. But if you were to keep working, you could catch more fish and earn more money. And why would I do that? Asked the fisherman. Well, then you could buy better equipment to catch more fish. In a few years, you might have enough to buy a boat or a large boat. Maybe eventually you could have a whole fleet of boats. And then what? Well, then you could retire and sit on a beach with your family, drink wine, and chat with the passerbys. This parable, this short story, points us to question the whole system, the whole system of the American dream. It trips the circuits in our mind. It jolts us. Being a Christian is not a longing for the life that others have, but it is your everyday life infused with purpose and meaning and beauty and love and adventure and compassion. Spirit, give us eyes to see it all around us. God revels in the smallness. God revels in the minute, the mundane. He, he revels in the everyday. He revels in the smallness. Just do small things, mustard-sized things with great love and watch your life 
bloom before your eyes. God, give us eyes to see it. God, give us the strength and the courage and the jolt that we need to move out of religious living and into the compassionate kingdom life you've called us to, God. God, forgive us for the ways in which the church has been a wall that confines us rather than something that releases us into the world to love it and to change it. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Uh, Next week and the week after, we'll be going through these parables of Jesus, all of them leading us towards Resurrection Sunday on April 9th. Uh, We can't wait, okay? We've got two services, a 9.30 and an 11. It is going to be incredible. We can't wait. We hope you have an amazing week. Grace and peace in Ukraine.